Good morning, everyone. Uh, before I begin this morning, you know, in light of what happened in Vegas, I just want to lead us uh, together as a church uh, in prayer. So I want you to join me in prayer uh, as we get started this morning. So let's pray together. Well, Father, once again, um, we find ourselves with more uh, questions than answers. And so we, we gather, as we do Sunday after Sunday, to hear from you, and we gather around your word. And it is only in your word that we discover a view of our world from your perspective that helps us begin to understand, never fully, but begin to understand how, how both good and evil can exist in the same world and oftentimes <coughs> in the exact same place at the same time. So we pray as we gather around your word this morning that you would, you would speak to us. We need to hear from you. We don't understand enough and we don't uh, know enough to guide our own lives. We need your guidance. And so we ask for insight this morning. And we saw again uh, this past week how uh, both how precious life is and then also we were reminded how fragile life is, oftentimes more fragile than we or really want to think about or want to admit. And um, so I pray that um, out of what we saw and the world saw, that uh, we would set aside uh, the foolish notion that our, our today is even guaranteed. And that in light of that, rather than give in to fear, we would, um, we would, you would teach us to number our days rightly so that we would live each day that we have left with, with wisdom rather than folly, and that we would do the kinds of things that you want us to do, and that we would take the opportunities to love the people that you've put in our life, uh, because we, we just have no idea uh, how many more days any of us will have to do that. And then um, we, we just... Well, we, we grieve for those um, whose lives were taken, and particularly for the families who are, are left, um, and friends and loved ones who are left with the, the hole and the emptiness. And this uh, just reminds us um, that we were not designed for death, and that death is an aberration caused by sin, and only you can solve that. But we pray for those, and particularly the families, that you would comfort them as only you can. And we pray for uh, our nation, um, and even wider than that, our world, as these kinds of things are now known almost instantly around the world. And we just pray that as it seems like this kind of thing keeps happening uh, with greater frequency and greater uh, evil, I just pray that um, the typical responses of moments of silence where nobody knows what to think or say or the typical debates that are never resolved in the light of these things, that, that the people of this world, that we would all just grow tired of 
the clear indication that um, we don't know the answer and that that, that, um, that hunger would draw people to you and draw people to your word as our culture and our world continues to have hollow or no answers at all for what's really taking place. So we pray now that as we turn our attention to the topic uh, at hand, that you would give insight uh, to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. We are talking about how to love the difficult people in our lives. And that requires courageous love. Now, you usually don't see those two words together, courage and love. We usually relegate those two words to kind of two separate realms of reality. In our minds, love belongs to the touchy-feely world of relationships, and uh, courage belongs to the real world of achievements or maybe battle. But God says that the most important of all achievements is love. In Galatians 5, verse 14, we read this. A very interesting statement says, for the entire law, what this is saying is, if you want to add up all the requirements that God lists in the pages of the Bible, keeping this one command is fulfilled in all of the law, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. So what this, this means, another way to say this is, God's top question of you and of me as our life is evaluated is this, are you loving the people that I've placed around your life. Now, of course, I think most of us would prefer to love. Nobody really wants to choose hate. Maybe eventually they get to that point, but we would all prefer love. And I think most of us really intend to love. The problem, of course, is that people are not neutral recipients of our love. They often do us wrong, and they hurt us. And they block us from the things that we want in life. And that's why it takes tremendous courage to to press through sometimes the opposition in order to accomplish this greatest of all deeds, and that is to love. So in the first three messages of this series, we're at the midpoint right now. In the first three messages, we got kind of the lay of the land in this battlefield of love. We first defined what love is and what it isn't. That's very important because we have a primarily emotional understanding of what love is. It has very little content to it. So we talk, talked about what love is. And then we talked about the three-point stance that love requires if it's going to stay engaged in a difficult relationship. And then last week, we talked about the territory where love operates. Now we, we turn a corner. In the, in the last three messages, I'm going to focus our attention on the tactics of love, of courageous love. So let me define what the word tactic means, just so we're all clear on that. This is the definition of tactic. It's an action carefully planned to achieve a specific end. So if you're trying to accomplish something, the tactic is, how do I get from where I am to what I'm trying to accomplish, that that end? How do do I plan? What what steps do I take? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Okay, we understand what love is, what our role in that is. Now, how do we do that? How do we get to that end? Now, the end that we're after in a difficult relationship particularly is usually change. 
sometimes change in us, but almost always change in them. And the tactics that we most often employ to uh, come up with change in the relationship are direct tactics. There are direct tactics and indirect tactics. Direct tactics, you take a straight line to the objective. Indirect tactics, you kind of take a circuitous route. You, you go you know, some different directions. They're indirect. You eventually get there, but not directly. So we take direct tactics. We, usually we do this verbally. We tell them what needs to change in their life, and then we tell them again, and then we tell them even with greater emphasis and greater clarity. And when that doesn't work, we usually resort to more you know, forceful tactics, direct still, but more forceful, where we either punish them or reward them. We push them or pull them toward the end that we want, the change that needs to occur. But our attempts to change people, of course, are often met with failure. And that only makes these relationships more differ- difficult. And the reason our attempts at tra- uh, change are, are met with failure is because of what we talked about last week. Uh, they, the, the person that's difficult for us, are inside our circle of concern, as we talked about last week, but they are outside the circle of our responsibility. We don't have the ability to change them. Now, the reason is because when it comes to change, they're just like us. Only we can decide to do anything about ourselves, and only they can decide to do anything, anything about themselves. And that's because the human heart that rules over this inner circle of personal responsibility is kind of like a fortified bunker. It will defend itself against all efforts to be breached from the outside. So what are we supposed to do then? Just kind of stand by and watch the train wreck that is this person's life continue to unfold? That doesn't sound very loving, and it isn't. No, that, we're not just supposed to stand by and observe. Love moves towards people, not, not away from people with a kind of a good luck with all that. I'm going to go off and do my other interesting things. But the moves that courageous love makes are often indirect, not direct. And the reason is this. If you want to be a change agent, they need to invite you into their heart. You can't crash their heart. You can't force yourself into their heart. There needs to be an invitation. They need to open the fortified bunker of their own choice. And that requires some indirect tactics. Now, let me be clear. When we talk about all of these tactics, there are no guarantees that any of this will work. You will never be able to rule over somebody else. There is no plan that is foolproof when it comes to change. But if, and this is the key if, if they will allow you into the inner sanctum of their heart where, where they live, where the real them is, if they allow you on the inside of their heart, you can have a great amount of influence. So how do you do this? How do you get an invitation? Well, in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12, one of the Gospels that describe the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus gives us in these 12 verses three tactical rules of engagement that offer us the best chance for an invitation into the heart of another person. Now, this is his summary. After he describes these tactics of getting an invitation, he concludes what he has to say. We're going to go back and look at these, but I want, I want to read the summary first. This is what he says in Matthew 7, verse 12 at the very end. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. 
Now, you know this, that this is probably the, the most famous of Jesus' teachings. It's, it's the best known. It's called the Golden Rule. Now, what most people don't realize is that the Golden Rule starts with the word so. And what that means is this is a summary. Jesus has been talking, and now he says, so. And he makes a summary statement. Before this statement, Jesus just had given three images of how to help people, difficult people, difficult relationships. And each of the three images that he gives illustrates a rule, a tactic of engagement. And so he concluded by saying, so all that I've just told you can be summarized and remembered if you just put yourself in their shoes and think, how would I want to be treated in this situation? And then you do that. In other words, you love them. That's how we all want to be treated. We, we want to be loved. And they're the same. Our tendency, especially in difficult relationships, is to make change our top goal, which only guarantees failure. As soon as change is your top goal in any relationship, you've just slammed the door of their hearts shut to you. But change is a byproduct of love. Again, it's not a guarantee. But change grows in the soil of love. So if you make change the focus, people are going to dig their heels in. But if you make loving them your focus, then before you know it, they just might, not for sure, but might be changing. So how? Well, three rules. Golden rule number one, tactic number one, is safety. This is so important in relationships. Creating an environment of relational safety is essential to change. The moment an individual sees you as unsafe, the drawbridge goes up, the moat is filled, and the heart becomes impenetrable. You are the last person to receive an invitation into the inner sanctum of their heart where, where they make the key decisions of their life. Safety is rule number one. Jesus starts out by describing it this way, Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, many people only know this verse in the Bible and, and use it often to say, well, you're not supposed to judge anyone or anything. But it's, it's a little more complex than that. Jesus is not opposed to the notion of making judgments or judging. You see, the word judge means to decide what is true. That's what a judge does in a courtroom. They hear the evidence, they weigh the evidence, and then either they direct a jury to vote, or if it's not a jury case, they judge. They, they decide what's true and what's not true. And judging is important in life. If you've got children, you want to raise them so that they have good judgment. In other words, so they can discern people and situations. And they can understand the truth about people and situations. If you don't have good judgment, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. If you can't tell a liar from a truth teller, if you can't tell a dangerous person from a safe person, well, you're, you're very vulnerable. So there's, there's nothing wrong with judgment itself. 
But what Jesus is talking about is he's making a practical observation in the context of difficult relationships. And he's saying if, if you make a truth statement about somebody else, if you judge somebody else, doesn't matter whether you're accurate or not, but you, you just make a truth statement about their life, what happens? If it's a negative truth statement, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. They will judge you back. It's like instant response. In fact, they will not only judge you back, they will return the favor with the exact same measure you use. For example, if you decide to confront someone and say, you know what, what you said was unkind, how do they respond to that? Does anyone, have you ever had anyone respond by saying, oh, man, I, I didn't know that. The last thing I want to be is unkind. I, I am so grateful that you pointed out how unkind my words were. Does that ever happen? I mean, if it does, boy, that is, that's an amazing person. What, what usually happens in response to that? Well, they respond by saying, well, what about the time when you said this, right? You think you're so good. I remember when you were unkind. And then it escalates from there. Why? What, what, what just happened? Why do we respond to judgment with judgment? I mean, you would think if we're serious about growing, we would, we would want input. But you see, there's something that we're even more serious about than growing. And that is handling our fear. We, we, are, we are all afraid. This is the primary impact that sin had on us, is fear. Now, we're, we're afraid in different ways, but we're all afraid. You know, after the first sin that Adam and Eve committed in the Garden of Eden, Eden, Adam's first words in response to God were these, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, the nakedness he's talking about is not just physical nakedness. That is true. But he'd been running around with Eve naked for who knows how long. But all of a sudden, it was a problem. So it's not talking about physical nakedness. What it's talking about is all of a sudden, after Adam and Eve stepped into the world of sin, they felt guilt and shame for the first time. They, they had become morally uncovered. And all of a sudden, they ran for cover. Now, they ran for physical cover, which, of course, didn't solve the problem. But that's, that was their instinct, is i I got to hide. I feel awful about myself. I've got to cover up. And we've, we've all done this ever since. We all feel guilt and shame about a number of things. We all know that something is wrong with us. Whether we admit it to anyone else, we know this deep inside the inner sanctum of our heart. We know there's a problem. Now, if we could just flip a switch and change and fix what's wrong with us, well, then maybe we wouldn't be so defensive. But depending on how old we are, we've all tried. And we've, we've really had limited success on fixing what's broken on the inside. So the last thing that we want is for someone to point out what we already know about ourselves. Or worse, uncover some new problem that we haven't discovered yet. We know there's more than we don't. We don't, but we don't, we're already kind of freaked out about what's wrong with us. We don't need more stuff being exposed. Like Adam and Eve, we're all trying to hide. And when someone judges you, 
They are blowing your cover. You know, we all walk around as best as possible trying to cover up the moral nakedness that we feel. We present ourselves in put-together ways. And the last thing we want is for someone to take our moral clothes off and expose our moral nakedness. And that's what judging does. It may be true, but boy, we're, we want to cover that up. So when we're talking about the need to change, we're, we are addressing the most sensitive part of a person. The image that Jesus uses to illustrate this point is a speck of sawdust in someone's eye. So after making the statement about judging, he goes on to paint this picture. This is the first of the three pictures that Jesus paints to illustrate how the tactics should be in a difficult relationship. Here's what he says in verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here's the image Jesus is painting. You know, if someone, you know, later today starts moving towards you with their finger pointed out and saying, hey, 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 there's something in, my, in your eye. Let me help you with that. What's your response going to be? <laughs> Back up. I'll, I'll take care of my own eye. I don't need your dirty fingers poking in my sensitive eye. You know, we, we respond defensively. The eye is no place to be letting people poke around. It's sensitive. And the point Jesus is making is this is the same way our heart is. Someone comes at you and says, hey, hey, there's a little flaw. I, I can help you remove it. Wait, wait, wait. That's even more sensitive than help, getting some help with a speck in your eye. Like with our eyes, our first concern is for our safety. Let me ask you a question. How many relationships do you feel safe enough to open up your heart and be honest about who you really are and what you're really struggling with? It's probably a very, very small number. And for most people, it's no one. No one. So the question is, how can we become a person who is safe enough? Well, it begins by turning our truth detector around and pointing it away from them and pointing it to ourselves. This is how we become safe. You see, when you read this image, one of the questions that should pop in your mind is, how is it possible for someone to notice a piece of sawdust in someone else's eye and ignore a plank in their own eye? Well, the answer is, to do that, to pull that off, you've got to be so focused on the problems of others that you, you literally are oblivious. You've lost all sensory perception to your own problems, to what's going on with yourself. Now, Jesus is using exaggeration here. You're not going to find someone with a plank, literally, out of their eye and a speck, and he's painting an image to make a point. The point is not about planks and eyes, but about sin and hearts. When we go direct and we, and we try to point out the problem in someone else's heart, two things happen. Number one, we immediately become blind to our own heart. We could have a plank hanging out of our eye, and we're so focused on them, we, we don't even notice it. 
That's the first thing that happens. And the second thing that happens is we become the last person that they feel safe enough to open their heart to. So we go blind to ourselves and dangerous to them. That's what happens. But we do this all the time. The possibility of change then that's embedded in every problem. And you have to realize problems are possible change opportunities. We tend to see problems and conflicts and struggle as something to avoid at all costs, but without problems, without pain, none of us would ever be motivated to change a single thing. We'd, everything would be fine. Why would we change? So when a problem comes up, you know, your first response, like mine, is probably, oh, no. But God's response is, oh, here's another chance. Change is possible because they're not feeling good. So they might be open to consider change. But if we take the problem and we, we direct our attention to them, we go blind to ourselves and dangerous to them. And the possibility of change that's embedded in every problem degrades into a sawdust war between two pe- people with plank-sized problems in each eye. Sawdust wars never solve anything. So if you really want someone to change, you change first. If you want them to change just a little bit, then you change just a little bit. If you want them to change a lot, well, then you really need to change a lot. Now, what I'm describing here, what Jesus is saying here, is not a trick, and it's not a guarantee, but it is your best way at becoming a safer person. Why? You see, safe people don't shake their heads in disgust at the sin of others. Why? Because they've spent a great deal of time struggling with their own problems. And people can just, whether you literally shake your head at them, people can tell if you're shaking your head on the inside. And the defenses go up. People who spend a lot of time dealing with their own planks, with their own sin, they have learned something very important about sin that most people don't know. And that's this. The main difference between sin is size, not type. We tend to look at the sins of other people and think, what is wrong with them? But if you spend enough time looking in your own heart, you should be able to look at every problem that everybody has and says, I know what's wrong with them because I've got that same seed inside of me. Now, maybe I haven't traveled that path as far as they have. Maybe I haven't allowed that seed to grow to the ugly size that theirs is. But, you know, I I know, I know how that happens. I know that I've got the same kind of heart in me. I mean, Jesus himself, just a little earlier than this, said, you've heard it said, do not murder. You know, we look at murderers and we think, what's wrong with them? Jesus says, but I tell you, don't get angry. That's the seed of murder. Anger unchecked over time erupts into Las Vegas. We... We can't imagine doing that, but getting angry with people? Oh, we know that. We know the seed. So there are specks and there are planks, but both come from the same material. What that means is we can look at every sin on this planet, even the horrible ones, and see at least the speck of that sin in our own hearts. We're all broken. That doesn't mean it's okay what everybody does because we're all broken. It gives us a heart for other people. 
Not a heart of condemnation, but a heart that really wants to help. Because we've traveled long in struggling with our own problems. That's how we become saved. That's rule number one. And I would say, I think it's the most critical rule in my experience. We must adopt a tactic of being safe. Rule number two is appetite. Appetite. I could summarize this by saying, wait for the question before you try to give the answer. We are answering all kinds of questions that nobody's asked us. They should ask us, but they're not. And because they're not, we'll just go ahead and give them the answer anyway. That never works. Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, Jesus is not calling people pigs and dogs. He is pointing out a dog and pig-like quality that we all have. Like dogs and pigs, pretty much every other animal, we are governed by our appetites. And if we're not hungry, we're not going to eat. And if we're given something we're not hungry for, we're not going to eat it. What he's talking about here is truth. Why wouldn't you give uh, a copy of a Bible to a dog? Because, I mean, it's sacred. God's Word is sacred. But a dog doesn't understand that. They would first walk up to the Bible and sniff it, wondering if it's something to eat. And turn away, if it's not, and eventually probably chew it up. They, they wouldn't recognize how sacred it is. They'd destroy it. And what about pigs? Why not give pearls to pigs? They don't, they don't eat pearls. They're not hungry for pearls. A pig never wakes up saying, oh, I want a big pile of pearls today for food. No, they're, they're in the slop, not pearls. And we are the same exact way with truth. That's what Jesus is saying here. If we're not hungry for the truth, no one can verbally force the truth into us. This is so important to understand because so much of what we say in difficult relationships is an attempt to force feed the truth into somebody. And that never works. Now, I know this is very disappointing news to you, especially to your parents. It's scary news to to you as parents. And I know this one. Over and over again, I thought when my kids were growing up, how how do I get this idea into their hearts? Well, there's some tactics, but force always backfires. (coughs) We are surrounded by people who desperately need to hear and accept the truth about them that we can see. I mean, we can see them blinking with their eye. I mean, they've got an eye problem, and we would love to help them, but they've got no appetite. For that truth. But that doesn't stop us, does it? We think, you know what? I just haven't said it right enough yet. You know, I, I just thought of, I thought of a one-liner that zoom, it'll, it'll, it'll just boom, it'll get right through all the defenses. And so we load our arrow of truth, we gather our pearl of wisdom, and we throw it in front of them, and what happens? They trample it. 
You see, unwanted instruction is dangerous. It's not just doesn't work. It backfires. You know, you approach a hungry pig with a handful of pearls, you put them on the ground in front of them, what happens? First of all, the pig goes out. <laughs> and when he discovers it's not the slop that he wants, he tramples. He just walks on them. And then there's a good chance the pig is going to get frustrated, get angry, and come after you because you haven't given them what they want. They're hungry. Now they, they don't realize. You, you can't sit down with a pig and say, look, <laughs> you see this pearl here? You have no idea how much slop you could buy with the value of this pearl. Pigs don't understand that. And when it comes to truth, we're as intelligent as pigs many times. You, you can't sit down and explain to someone, look, if, if you accepted this truth about yourself and you began to change over time based on this truth, you know how much your income would go up over time? You have no idea how most people you work with can't stand you. That's why you haven't been promoted. And that's why you, every boss you work for is a jerk. I mean, this is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, this truth. I'm just giving you one example. Or you know how you, you keep struggling in marriages? If, if you just knew this truth, you could experience the joy that God intends in that relationship. And so we, we've got something valuable. We can often see some things in other people that maybe they can't see in themselves. But if they don't realize it, they don't want it, then exactly what happens with that pig happens in this relationship. You know, it doesn't matter how, how many pearls of wisdom you've loaded up. They don't stop and thank you for the wisdom. No, they trample on the truth that you just shared with them, and then they come after you, fangs bared. You see, the human heart is designed to resist being force-fed truth. This is actually something that God's designed it to do. That's because God created the human heart to be free. So there's just a lot of natural defenses in place to keep it free. God's made us so that we just don't, oh, whatever, okay, whatever you say, I'll do that, I'll do this, I'll do that. No, no, it's for our safety that we're like, eh. This is why unwanted instruction is so dangerous. So it's absurd to try to get people to ingest the truth that they don't want. As Jesus says, you might as well feed pearls to pigs and give dogs Bibles to read. If the heart doesn't want it, it doesn't matter how right you are doesn't matter how valuable that truth is. Change only occurs when we open up our heart to the truth and we let it in. So what are we supposed to do? Nothing? Put away all the sacred things? Put away the pearls of great wisdom and just wait? Yep. Yes. But while you're waiting for an appetite to develop, there is something you can do you can start giving them some of the things that they want. You see, the hand that God often uses to hand out the pearls of wisdom that they accept usually is the same hand that's been giving them other gifts. They have learned to trust the hand. So when they are open for truth, when they have an appetite to learn in an area, 
It's that hand that they often trust first. Because they know, they recognize that hand as a hand that cares, a hand that's given them many good gifts over the years. So you can get ready for that moment by giving them good gifts. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean you give someone whatever they want so that they'll trust the hand. Now, a lot of times people want stuff that's not good for them. And you, you can't give them slop, moral slop. But there are, with everybody, there are good things you can give them. One of the ways to find out how you can help people is just ask them, how can I help you? And they'll tell you, and maybe you can say, well, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing that, but I can help you with this. And then ask God. Ask God, what, what do they need? What, what, how could I bless them? I really want them to change, but they're not open to it. So in the meantime, how can I help them? How can I love them? How, how can I serve them? What, what good thing can I give them and become a hand that they trust? But leave the pearls in their pocket. Now, how do you spot when someone's appetite begins to turn? They become open in an area. Well, that's, actually, I could say a lot more about that, but let me just give you two key indicators. One is they begin to open up about a problem they're struggling with. They begin to tell you about a problem. Now, the moment they tell you about a problem, do not respond by saying, I've been waiting five years to tell you how messed up you are in this area. Boom, and you drive the Mack truck of truth through that opening, and the defenses go up, and you get thrown out of the heart. So, so don't get panicky on this. But it's an indication. If, they, if they're willing to open up and tell you about a problem they're struggling with, well, you're, you're at least a safe person, and they just might be open to some stuff. So continue the conversation and look for some more opportunities. The second thing you'll notice when an appetite begins to form in someone for truth is they begin to ask questions. Usually it comes out of some pain or struggle. They begin asking bigger questions about themselves and about life. Those are indicators that an appetite is beginning to form. Don't rush it, but notice it. So that's golden rule number two, appetite. Golden rule number one, safety. Now golden rule number three, pray. Verses 7 through 8, the next verses in Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, this is not talking about asking God for whatever you want, and he'll give it to you. A lot of times people just lift this verse out and say, oh, I got a golden ticket. I can get whatever I want now. No, th this, is in the, this is in the context of the theme about how to deal with difficult people. You don't judge them. You don't force feed the truth to them. What you do is pray for them because God is the one who has the power to change people. God can access a heart much easier than you can. You and I don't have that power. What we do have is the power to ask the one who has the power, God. But why don't we pray very much about the people that we're struggling with? Well, praying seems so passive, doesn't it? And these people need to change like yesterday. But, you know, praying is not passive. Jesus gives a third scene to make this point. The scene is of a child asking a parent. This is what it says in verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 7. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, 
though you are evil, you, you've got the seeds of sin in your heart. As a parent, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will your Father in heaven give, give, give good gifts to those who ask him? So if you've straightened out your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you are now a son or a daughter of God. You're a child of God. Now, I know many of you are parents. I'm a parent. Now I'm a grandparent. My kids are grown. But let me ask you, how, how do you respond to requests from your kids or your grandkids? I mean, you don't do like what this is described. You know, y- your child says, could you please pass the bread? And you go, oh, oh here's a rock. <laughs> you don't do that. Or you know what? I, I really, I'm hungry for some fish. Please pass the fish. Oh, let me get a snake. This will freak them out. You don't do that. That's just twisted. Even though you've got struggles with sin, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more your heavenly father? You see, we tend to see our difficult relationships like God just gave us a stone or he gave us a snake in the form of this person. We didn't ask for this. So why did God give this to us? Well, again, let me ask you, when does change occur? When everything is going well? No, it's when things are difficult. If you have a difficult relationship, that's an opportunity for change in you and in them. Difficulties are the food of change. It's God's gift. This is what it says in James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you kill. I mean, that's the extreme version. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have what you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What's the number one cause of relational conflict here? People getting in the way of what we want? No, that's described, but that's the secondary cause. What's the primary cause? A lack of prayer. That's what this is saying. We're not going to God with our needs. And so when we don't go to God with our needs, then we go to the next best thing, and that's the people in our lives. Could you meet our needs? Could you put our life together? And when they don't, then we go to war with them. And left unchecked, things escalate, sometimes to death. And then even if we do go to God with prayer, even if we do remember, oh, yeah, 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 let me ask God for something. We go with the wrong motives, it says. We go selfish. It's all about God giving us what we want, not asking God, what do you want? And how could I be a, be a part of that? You see, it's when we get interested in what God is doing in their lives and in our lives that we can begin to be an agent of change. This, this point, for me personally, is very convicting. I'm convicted about how little I pray for the difficult people in my life. Oh, I pray all the time about the problems that they cause. But so rarely do I pray about them and go before God and ask God, what is going on with them? And how can I help them? And would you bless them? It's all, would you stop them from messing with me? I'm not really praying for them. I'm praying for me. So if you forget all of this, just remember the golden rule. Let me read again, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. How would you want to be treated? Would you rather be helped by someone who is judging your sin or who's working primarily on their sin? Oh, I'd rather have that person. That person is much safer. Would you rather 
Someone blast you with the truth or wait for the right moment? Oh, I'd, I'd rather have someone who feeds me what I'm hungry for. Would you rather someone tell you everything that's wrong with you or someone spend hours in prayer for you? Boy, I'd really want someone praying for me. Well, now you know what to do. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your very pointed instruction on these matters. And now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take these words and as we ponder them and chew on them, and think about them, you would help us to know how to put them into action in our difficult relationships. What we need to do next, what we need to really work on, so that these words would begin to nourish us and might begin to open up the hearts of those that you've put in our life. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.